It's our anniversary show. No big deal. I was really excited, but Steve told me I sounded like a 13-year-old, so... <sighs> you guys, it's our one-year anniversary. I'm You're so missing excited. It. You're missing it. I'm missing what? Who are you? My name is Kim, and I'm so excited. It's our one-year anniversary. And I am Steve. And yes, this is our one-year anniversary show. And we are. We're very excited to do this. 52 episodes. 53, counting the 53, counting TSP. Yeah. Um, So before we launch into our official one-year anniversary episode, uh, you know, a lot can happen in a year, but a lot can happen in 48 hours. Um, It's been a big weekend for some friends of ours. So uh, I wanted to give a couple of shout outs. There's a baby. There is a baby. There is a wedding. There's a whole bunch of stuff that happened this weekend. So I wanted to give a shout out, first of all, chronologically, uh, to Jackie and Brandon, our good friends. Um, And, you know, of course, Jackie is a co-host of um, Mile 13. So they got a puppy. Well, she's not a puppy. They got a dog this weekend, their first dog. And I'm so very excited for them. Um, Also... Uh, congratulations to my friend Kelsey, who got engaged this weekend. Super congratulations to Mr. and Mrs. Matthew and Bryn Kilala, who got married this weekend. Um, Bryn is Jackie's best friend and my best friend then by default. And uh, and they got married this weekend. It was a weird, it's a weird time to get married in the time of coronavirus. It was a very uh, small ceremony. But it was streamed via YouTube Live, and I think they said they had 175 people watching at one point. Also, today... The things we have to do because of COVID. It's crazy. Also, today, Miss Margaret Madison Biggers was made her entrance into the world. Um, so, congratulations to Matt and Jess, who are very dear friends of ours. Um, Jess always refers to herself as the house guest that never left. She's been friends of Steve's daughter for many, many years, uh, and she had her third baby today. So congratulations, everybody. What a year it has been. It has and been. the year's only about half over. Not Yeah, it's a little over half over. So um, I wanted to start out, you know, we, we I did mention a lot can happen in a year. Uh, so a brief recap of 2020 so far. Um, if you're listening much later or even a little bit later, it is the end of July right now, July 2020. Um, so in January, we had the Australian wildfires. Remember those? Um, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Do you remember that was a thing for a minute? Um, and then the death of, ba- of course, basketball legend Kobe Bryant. Uh, in February, the World Health Organization named COVID-19. Uh, Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of rape. Uh, in March, Italy went on lockdown. They were the first nation to go on full lockdown because of coronavirus. And the Olympics in March were postponed for a year. So the Olympics theoretically will be in 2021 for the Summer Olympics. Um, in in April, we had that infamous bleach speech by Trump. Remember where he he said something about um, you know if he if you could find something that you could inject or whatever, and people went nuts thinking that he was talking about injecting bleach which he wasn't, um, in May murder hornets. I'm not sure whatever happened to those, but they were supposed to be an issue in May. And then of course in June we had, um, George Floyd's death and the resulting 
uh, and continuous upheaval. Um, and then in July, we had Hamilton came to Disney Plus and people got to see it for the first time. Um, and it really has received a lot of uh, interesting discussion about how what a difference a couple of years makes versus when Hamilton de- de- debuted on Broadway versus when it kind of made its way into today's collective culture. Uh, we also had the Corona resurgence in July and the continuation of class and racial discord along with the death of um, prominent civil rights leader John Lewis. And why are you rolling your eyes at me? Because I want to get on with the show. This is part of the show. These are all things that happened in one year of our of our show being on the on on the airwaves. Um, but today we are going to talk about another significant year in American history, and that year is 1969. So we look back in time, in in recent time, and we said with all these things right now going on in 2020. Is there a year that was that had so much stuff going on of importance and we looked back and we decided we 1969 was a year and we're going to cover that year and look because it is our anniversary special we may run a little bit over again but that's okay because <laughs> I promise we'll get back on track soon. Yeah, and we'll start releasing on time but it it Things are crazy. We're they, closer they really, than we have been. Yeah, we're closer. This we're is going to get there. released on Monday night. So We're getting there. Okay, so here we are. Let's start off with 1969. But before we do that, let's the main topics that we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about the moon landing and the Vietnam War, which were very significant. And Kim, you're going to talk about what? Uh, Charlie. Charlie Manson and uh, and Woodstock, which yeah. were also very significant and took place within a couple of weeks of each other, yeah. which I had never so realized before. Those are some of the main topics, but there's so many other things that happened in 1969. So before we get into the, the heart and the depth of the show, let me just run down some fun facts first. The cost of living in 1969. So the yearly inflation rate in the United States was 5.46%. In the UK, it was 5.6%. The Dow closed, the year-end Dow closed at 800. 800, and that was, okay, it, it was 800. I don't the, understand what that the, means. The average cost of a new house in 1969 was $15,550. Holy cow, I do understand that one. The average income per year was $8,550. A month's rent, the average month's rent in 1969 was $135. The average cost of a new car was $3,270. A Toyota Corona was $1,950. Gas, 35 cents a gallon. (laughs) An alarm clock from West Clock would cost you $9.98. So it's crazy. Some popular films... Of 1969, The Love Bug. Remember Herbie the Love Bug? I do. Lindsay Lohan remade that in the 2000s. Funny Girl, Butch Cassidy, and The Sundance Kid. These movies are classics now. True Grit. Also remade. Yep. Midnight Cowboy, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Easy Rider, and one of my favorite movies that I love to watch on a cold night when it's snowy and it's cold and it's kind of like winter break i love to put this movie on late at night and just watch it it's uh where eagles dare 
Now, some popular musicians of 1969, and we're going to reference some of these when we talk about Woodstock. The Rolling Stones had their hit Honky Tonk Woman in 1969. James Brown was big. The Beatles actually recorded and released their Abbey Road album in 1969, and they had Get Back and Come Together. Um, Johnny Cash had Daddy Sang Bass. Bob Dylan was big. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. This is before Neil Young was at it. Um, Creedence Clearwater Reviver. I love CCR. I do. Clear, uh CCR Creedence Clearwater Revival. Blah. John Denver, Simon and Garfunkel, who we actually used in our wedding. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, Mark. One of their songs. When, they not them. Yeah, not way. them. But, yeah. Okay. Fleetwood Mac, Marvin Gaye, uh, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Cream, Pink Floyd. And then also in 1969, in the year 2525, was released by Zager and Ev- Evans. Sugar Sugar was released by the Archies. Elton John was they making it big. used to be a big. cartoon, the Archies. Uh, Elton John was making it big, and his um, David Bowie, who also, uh, it's interesting that their contemporary relationship uh, was also making it big. Also, there was this. The first Concorde test flight was conducted in France. The first transplant of a human eye. Seiko sold their first quartz watch. Get this one. The first ATM or automatic teller machine was installed in the United States, 1969. And the Boeing Jumbo Jet, the 747, made its first debut. It carried 191 passengers. Most of them were reporters and photographers from Seattle to New York City. Unix, which is a... uh, The code. Yeah, was developed by a group of employees at AT AT&T at Bell Labs. The Pontiac Firebird Trans Am, mm. the muscle car, the original—I, I, you know, you can't say the it's OG really a, muscle car. I don't yeah, know. It, but it, the, the Firebird Trans Am made its appearance in 1969, and one of the things that changed the world—the microprocessor—was mm-hmm. uh, invented and started in 1969. Now. The Vietnam War was a major part of the year 1969. Now, obviously, the Vietnam War had been going on for a while, but it took some significant events and changes. Things started happening in a different way in in Vietnam right now. Yeah, um, in ni- this was in an election, not an election year, but 68 was an election year. So 1969 in January was when Richard Nixon took office. Yeah, so... There were so many things, there were so many combat operations that happened in 1969. There's no way that we can cover each of these because it is, I went through and researched, you know, it tells about this operation, this operation, this operation. Like every couple of days, there was a different operation launched. So I had to go through and kind of sort out and pick out the things that were the highlights of 1969. And so, you know, some things may be left off, but it's just, things that I researched and I thought were fairly significant events that happened in 1969, that it's really not the battles that took place because there were just so many. Like I said, there's no way we can cover all that stuff in an hour. So on January 18th, the parties to the Paris peace talks came to agreement. Now listen to this. On the shape, it took them a while, but they came to an agreement on the shape of the conference tables and the placement of the representatives who were, nego- who were going to negotiate the end of the war. That is insane. Yeah. So it took them nearly six weeks of procedural disagreements raised by South Vietnamese President Nguyen K. Kai. 
the parties finally came to an agreement that the two sides would be clearly separated by two rectangular tables with a round table, one in the middle, with one round table in the middle, and that the tables would have no nameplates, no flags, no written minutes of the understanding of the setup. Are you kidding me? Six weeks to, to do that, yeah. That's ridiculous. As you mentioned, Richard Nixon was inaugurated as the 37th president of the United States. Moving up to March, the South Vietnamese Prime Minister Tran Van Hung nearly escaped an assassination by a four-man Viet Cong team as he was being driven home in, in Saigon. Hung's car was attacked by the VC who were wearing stolen uniforms of the Vietnamese Rangers. However, the Saigon Police Department and other troops, the Army's Republic of Vietnam troops, opened fire and gave the driver time to accelerate and get the, the president out of harm's way. So... It's really interesting. We don't cover a lot of war, but this might be a good one to cover someday in a future episode along with the War of 1812 because um, there are two wars that I never learned about in school. We've talked about stuff, but I mean, I, we briefly I would like on to, it, I would like to make my own podcast just me of of military of I military think that would be stuff. Awesome. Yeah. I think you should. I just, I, there's just no time to do it right now because we're having a hard time. We're having a hard time just getting this one out. On okay, time because right now. I work, but you're. I I have a job in, too, Kim. I know you do, but you're locked down in quarantine in the evenings when I'm at work. I think you should do it anyway. Okay. Moving on. Okay, combat operations extended into Cambodia. So there was Operation Menu was the code name of the United States Air Force Strategic Air Command bombing campaign conducted into eastern Cambodia from 18 March 1969 until 26 May 1970. Now, this was significant that the war was escalating and crossing over the borders into uh, Cambodia. The targets of these attacks were Viet Cong sanctuaries and base areas used for resupply training and retesting campaigns, restarting campaigns across the border into South Vietnam. So basically what was happening, we weren't allowed to chase them over into Cambodia, and so the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, would do what they had to do. Then they would go across the border, and we couldn't do anything about it. Well, now it, it the rules changed, and that started to happen. The number of American military personnel in Vietnam peaked at five hundred forty-three thousand people in nineteen sixty-nine. Now that's kind of significant that's because a we're going to tiny country too. Yeah, Vietnam well, is. yeah, but there's something else going to come up at the end of nineteen sixty-nine. That, well, as we start talking about withdrawal of troops here in a little bit, mm. tensions and casualties started escalating months after the Vietnam War began, both in Vietnam and back at home in the United States. In the beginning of April, a massive group of Harvard students took their anger out, to, they took it out to the school, trying to overflow or overthrow officials, all while physically taking out multiple deans and eventually locked themselves in a revolt against the Vietnam War. Wow. So they took over buildings at, at Harvard University. Which is as, not something I would picture from Harvard students. Why? I don't know. I just picture, I don't picture academics as physical. <laughs> okay. 
I, <laughs> Sorry. That's probably, that's very, I, that's very uh, stereotypical of me, but I don't picture academics I, I think, as fighters. I think that would be, not to be insulting, but I think that'd be very naive to think of that. I, I just don't, when I, I don't know. I don't think of academics as being people who, I don't, I picture academics as fighting with their minds, not with their fists. Well, they did. So I, they, they did. They, so there, there you, you go. go. <laughs> Moving up into April, the United States Department of Defense announced that the death toll for American soldiers in the war had exceeded 32,629 who had died in the Korean War. So based on 300 additional deaths during the week of March 22nd to March 28th, it brought the death toll of U.S. soldiers to 33,641. So that was a significant and traumatic event that happened right there. Later on in April... The 20th of April, to be exact, President Nixon announced that he would order the withdrawal of 150,000 U.S. troops from South Vietnam over the next 12 months in a gradual policy of what they called, what he called, Vietnamization, putting more responsibility on the South Vietnamese and running their country and their government, which we know in the end didn't really work, but this is when it started. On the 21st of April, in one of the first Fragging incidents. Now, fragging is where soldiers would throw a grenade, a fragmentary grenade, into the tent of their leader. So it was okay. called, it picked up the nickname of fragging. So, one of the first fragging incidents of the war, a grenade was thrown into the office of First Lieutenant Robert T. Roweller and it killed him. Private Reginald F. Smith pleaded guilty to premeditated murder and was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment. He died in custody on the 25th of June, 1982. Wow, so it was like a friendly fire incident? No, he was intentionally trying to kill his leader. Why? Do we know? They didn't, yeah, they didn't like, they, they, yeah, they, the the leaders were ordering them to go out into combat and maybe he didn't like the decisions that were being made. Whatever, he, you know, I didn't read the transcripts of the trial, but he Wow. Felt the need to kill his officer, so he threw a grenade into his office to kill his officer. Wow. Yeah. On the 7th of June, Dan Bullock was the youngest U.S. serviceman to be killed in war at the age of 15, in, in this war, at the age of 15. He lied about his age and joined the Marine Corps and was killed in a sapper attack on a base in Vietnam. 15 years old, lied about his age. Wow. You'd think the doctors at MEPS would have... Yeah, you would think. Different you know, times, I guess. Different times. On the 8th of June, a meeting took place on Midway Island between President Nixon and the South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese president. Nixon announced that 25,000 American troops would be withdrawn from South Vietnam by the end of September. Additionally, on this day, First Lieutenant Sharon Ann Lang, who was an Army nurse, was killed in a rocket attack. Now, interestingly enough, she was the only U.S. servicewoman killed by hostile fire during the Vietnam War. Hmm. I, I really didn't know that. I, I assumed that there were more, but she was the only female that was killed in hostile fire during the Vietnam War. Interesting. Yeah. On the 10th of June, the Viet Cong announced that it selected leaders for its provisional revolutionary government of the Republic of South Vietnam assuming they would win the war. So they started making plans right now to install a government into South Vietnam. Later on in June, Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird announced 
that the U.S. forces, the first U.S. forces to leave South Vietnam would be 900 infantrymen from the 9th Infantry Division. So it, it started off with what Nixon promised. Now it started off with a gradual withdrawal of 900 infantrymen. On the 27th of June, okay, this is where things back home and it's just so much turmoil going on. Life magazine published a photograph of 242 Americans killed in one week in Vietnam. This is now considered a watershed event of negative public opinion to the war. Kind of the same thing happened during uh, at the beginning of World War II when in, in the movie tones, the movie reels, mm-hmm. they showed a lot of dead Americans on the beach. And that kind of changed a lot of attitudes about things right there. Later on, the 8th of July, the first of 25,000 American troops to be withdrawn from South Vietnam arrived at McCord Air Force Base at about 6.30 in the evening in a C-141 transport plane. So now, you know, we started off with, uh, what, what did we say, 900, 900 infantrymen. Yep. Now they've withdrawn 25,000 American troops. The first of, of them started uh, being withdrawn. Nixon released, on the 25th of July, President Nixon released what is now called the Nixon Doctrine, which was the outline for the first time in an informal press conference with reporters who had accompanied the president to Guam during his Asian tour. There were two points that were made during or with the Nixon Doctrine. One of them was that the U.S. would keep its treaty, its treaty commitments, and two, Vietnam would start taking care of itself. That's the Vietnamization mm-hmm. where they would start taking care of itself, which... Things started happening right there. So on the 30th of July, President Nixon made his only presidential visit to South Vietnam, meeting U.S. personnel at a uh, at a Dion base camp in South Vietnam. So, it, you know, typically a lot of presidents will make a tour to a war zone to uh, to show up and and meet and greet the troops and stuff like that. But this was Nixon's only trip to uh, to Vietnam. Hmm. On the 4th of August, U.S. National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, I th- he's still alive. Is he? Yeah, I think I think he's still alive. Secretly met with North Vietnam's former foreign minister to bypass the deadlock Paris peace talks. So you, you got to imagine things weren't happening real fast. I mean, if it, it took, took him six, six weeks, weeks to come figure out the tables. Six weeks just to figure out how they're going to set up the tables. Yeah. So Kissinger secretly met to to bypass all the bureaucracy that was happening. Um, later in, in, in be, still in the beginning of August, North Vietnam released three American prisoners of war. Among them was U.S. Navy seaman Douglas Hegdahl, who had memorized the names of all the other prisoners from his Ooh, prisoner war camp good. and was able to pass along information. On the 24th of August, the first publicized combat refusal of American soldiers in the war took place when Alpha Company of the 196th Light Infantry Brigade 23rd Infantry Infantry Division refused to obey the orders of their lieutenant. And you talk about fragging. It wasn't popular what was going on there with the troops and with, uh, you know, and back at home. So there was fragging, and this was the first time that that an entire unit had refused to... um, to obey orders. I that's beyond the scope of comprehension to yeah, me. Like I cannot me, imagine. To me now it is, yeah. The battalion commander, a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Robert C. Bacon, traveled to the area the next day and reassigned the lieutenant to another position. So I guess that's how they dealt with it. They just moved the lieutenant. Shuffled to, people around. Shuffled people around. Ho Chi Minh 
died on the 2nd of September, 1969, at his home in Hanoi at the age of 79 from a heart attack, heart failure. Now, again, I really fully support your military podcast because I don't know who Ho Chi Minh is. Honestly, I know that makes me sound idiot, but I... I would never admit that. I It is a failure of my I would, you know what I would do? educational upbringing. I would tell me just pause and I would stop the podcast and I would grab myself... <laughs> and figure that one out. I'm yeah. all about transparency. Okay. They don't teach this in school anymore. You should take on that mantle for yourself. So educate the youth of America. There, there's the secret. If you think that like we're really, really smart, no. But we we have the uh, capability to hit pause and research for questions that we and things that we don't know and make it appear as if. Some of us really are really, really <laughs> smart. We just don't know military history as well. Yeah. I used to teach a class in military history. You should do a podcast. Anyway, go on. So on the 5th of September, I mean, war is ugly, but this is, you know, and we we had our uh, incidents in Iraq with Mm -hmm. things that happened. On um, the 5th of September, uh, United States Army Lieutenant William Calley was charged with six counts of premeditated murder and what became known as the My Lai Massacre. Now, the My Lai Massacre happened in 1968. It took until the 5th of September for the investigation, first off, for it to come out, mm-hmm. then for the investigations, and then to get enough evidence to charge him with, uh, with, with murder at that point. Back home, the Weatherman faction of the Students for a Democratic Society launched the Days of Rage protest in Chicago to bring the war home. So it kind of some parallels right now with yeah. all the, the, the stuff that's happened in the streets of our cities here in the United States right now. That happened. That was between the 8th and 11th of October. On the 10th of October, on the advice of National Security Advisor Kissinger, President Nixon issued secret orders to the Joint Chiefs of, Chiefs of Staff to commence Operation Giant Lance. And this was the sending of bombers armed with nuclear weapons towards Moscow to try to convince the Soviet leaders that he was not reluctant to launch a nuclear war in an effort to end the ongoing war. A squadron of 18 B-52 bombers, each carrying nuclear weapons, nuclear bombs, would be sent out on the 27th of October. You talk about escalation. No kidding. Yeah. And, you know, there were, there were military leaders in Vietnam that wanted to use atomic bombs to, um, to bring it into the war, to try, to try to defeat the North Vietnamese. On the 12th of October, anti-war protesters invaded a U.S. Army base for the first time. An estimated 5,000 anti-war demonstrators made their way onto uh, Fort Dix in New Jersey. They were met and driven back by about 1,000 military policemen and they used tear gas. But what's interesting here is there were no arrests and there were no injuries. That is really interesting, yeah. especially in light of today's yeah. culture. Yeah. So like we said, you know, I, we're not trying to cover all the different battles and stuff like that. We're just trying to hit with just the major kind of events. Like that month happen- by month, yeah, kind of what happened. Yeah, what happened right here. Um, on In October, middle of October, hundreds of thousands of people took Part in the moratorium to end the war in Vietnam, demonstrations across the United States began um, on a regular workday. 
Estimates of turnouts of 250,000 in Washington, D.C. and 100,000 in Boston people turned out to protest the the uh, Vietnam War and try mm-hmm. to bring an end to the Vietnam War. In uh, late October, the beginning of November, the uh, the Vietnamese overran landing zone Kate, occupied by the 5th Special Forces Group detachments Alpha 233 and Alpha 236 and their Montreal forces and elements of the 5th Battalion 22nd Artillery and the 1st Battalion 92nd Artillery. That's another reason I didn't want to cover all the battles because there are just so many different units and it, it can yeah. get confusing. The base was abandoned on the night of the 1st of November and the U.S. and Montreal uh, forces evacuated towards uh, another nearby base camp. Now, if you've ever watched the movie The Green Berets with John Wayne, this is probably most likely what that movie was based upon. And you remember how hmm. John Wayne in the movie, they, you know, he came in in the helicopter and the base was being overrun. They had to evacuate the base. It's like exactly what happened right here. I only watched that movie once and I just remember the little Vietnamese boy at the end. Was my Peter song brave? That's literally yeah. the only thing I remember about that movie. Kim cried at that movie. I cried because of the little boy. Yeah. He's cute. On the 3rd of November, President Nixon addressed the nation on television and radio at 9.30 p.m. Washington time to announce his plans to end American involvement in the war. Nixon gave his reasons for rejecting immediately removing all troops. Now, you got to follow me with this one, framing that... That option is the first defeat in our nation's history that would result in the collapse of confidence in American leadership, not only in Asia, but throughout the world. Nixon instead restated his plan for Vietnamization, the complete withdrawal of all U.S. ground combat troops, and the replacement by South South Vietnamese forces on an orderly scheduled timetable. But he added that he did not intend to announce details of the timetable. He didn't want to announce, you know, hey, we're pulling out on this date. Yeah. So he kept a close hold with that. In closing, he described the people um, who would support his plan for a drawdown as the, here's where it gets political and and bureaucratic. The great silent majority of my fellow Americans, in contrast to a vocal minority of protesters, which if they prevailed over reason and the full will of the majority would mean that the United States would have no future as a free society. Now, I find it interesting that Nixon's reason for removing the troops was that it would result in a collapse of confidence in American leadership. Um, And then this is the same man who would do sketchy stuff behind the backs of the American people. Well, we're talking about 1969, not... I know, on, but I'm just on. saying later on it did the, he did lead to a collapse of American leadership confidence because of actions that he did. On the 13th of November, remember we talked about Me Lai and, and Lieutenant Kelly was charged on but the story broke about the 1968 massacre. It was first revealed to the public by freelance American investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch, who was con, uh, contributing to the dispatch news service. And approximately at the same time, the New York Times published a similar report. So this is when it first came to light to the American public, November. So really a little over a year. Mm. But he was charged before this. In but April, it was, right? Yeah, but it wasn't released to the public until right now. Interesting. Yeah, so we're coming up towards the close of the Vietnam War right now. On the 15th of November in Washington, D.C., more than 500,000 protesters staged 
the largest peace march on Washington, D.C. in American history for the second moratorium to end the war in Vietnam. The event, also held on a smaller scale in other American cities, included a symbolic march against death. Now, remember at the beginning I said, you know, we, we talked about um, bringing more people in and when we talked about it peaked of five, what five hundred and forty three thousand people mm-hmm. in Vietnam, and but we started withdrawing people mm-hmm. on the first of December. The first draft lottery in the United States since nineteen forty two, and the first in peacetime was held on sep and September fourteenth was the first of three hundred sixty six days of the years selected, with Congressman Alexander Pernoy Pernoy of uh, New York making the first selection. So now, that's when the draft started in December 1969. Oh, is it because it was in peacetime? Because it was not technically back then. It was not the Vietnam it was War. Not a declared, it was just a conflict. It was not a declared war by Congress. And so. now, and it still is, it never was declared the Vietnam War, no, correct? It it's always been, we just call it that. But yeah. it was actually the conflict in Vietnam. Yeah. So I'm going to consider, right now, let's move on. I'm going to consider, I'm going to talk about what I consider one of the greatest achievements of all time, and this is the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. When We have to go back a little bit before 1969. When John F. Kennedy became president of the United States in January 1961, many Americans perceived that the United States was losing the space race with the Soviet Union, which had successfully launched the first artificial satellite, satellite known as Sputnik 1, almost four years earlier. The perception increased when, on April 12, 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first man in space before the U.S. could launch its first Project Mercury astronaut. So there's a lot riding on here with the Cold War, and you just have to kind of picture, like, our technology. You know, there, there was active combat going on from Korea, Involving communist forces and U.S. United States forces. Listen, I am from the home of invention. We created the airplane, and I never had any doubt that we would win the space race. Okay, so, and we'll talk about Neil here in a little bit. Um, American pride was further crushed um, by the Bay of Pigs fiasco five days later. Convinced of the political need for an achievement which would decisively demonstrate America's space superiority, Kennedy stood before Congress on the 25th of May, 1961, and proposed that the United States should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. Not everyone was impressed with this. A Gallup poll indicated that 58% of Americans were po- opposed to doing this. Now, there were a lot of reasons, but it, a lot of it came down to money. A lot of people felt like the money could be better spent on... Other things? D- Domestic-type projects. I yes. probably would have been impressed. Yeah. I like big dreamers. Yeah. However, let's flash forward to July 1969. Apollo 11 launched from Cape Kennedy on July 16th, 1969, carrying Commander Neil Armstrong Ooh. from Wapakoneta, Ohio. Shoot, yeah. Command Module Pilot Michael Collins and Lunar Module Pilot uh, Edwin Buzz Aldrin into an initial Earth orbit about 114 to 116 miles above Earth. Then they circled the Earth, maybe a time or two, and then <laughs> they made their way to the moon. 
Now, I call this Kentucky windage because you just don't like aim at the moon and take off. They had to aim where the moon was going to be when they would get there. So, they, you know, they had to aim way over here so they would hit it. You know, these people are pretty daggone smart yeah, to make, this all, stu- make all this sure stuff happen. That, I'm sure that you're going to share some statistics, but the statistics that you shared with me earlier about the technology involved is mind-boggling yeah, we'll, to me. We'll, we'll get to that. On July 20th, um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin entered the lunar module, made a final check, and Armstrong and Aldrin began their descent to the surface of the moon aiming for the Sea of Tranquility. As they neared the surface of the moon, Neil Armstrong had to take the lunar module off computer and manually fly the lunar module to the surface of the moon to avoid the boulders on the moon's surface. Um, this is a, insane. A, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine riding no, that No, I thing? can't. And like it was, yeah. And, and, like, this it was, is a brand like, new piece of machinery it was like equipment aluminum. The, the sides been. were like aluminum foil thick here. I okay? cannot. No, this is... In, it's a, as they These started, guys were heroes. As they started landing, alar- as, as they came closer to the moon, alarms started sounding inside the lunar module as it began to ro- run low on fuel during their final seconds of descent. Uh, the lunar module landed at 4.17 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time with only 30 seconds of fuel remaining. So let's take a second here and... Um, listen to and, some and, hardcore and, news. And let, let's listen to them landing on the moon. Altitude, velocity, light, in and down, 20 feet, 15 forward, 11 forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, 4 and a half down, 5 and a half down, within 6 and a half down, 5 and a half down, 9 forward, good, within 20 feet. So I apologize for the audio quality of that, but... I mean, it was recorded in they, 1969. They were, they were landing on the moon, so... Wait, can you imagine those guys? So we have been to um, the place in Florida where this, like, the launch pad was and where they were, um, you know, like, that we've seen a mock-up of the room where they 
you know, were standing when all of this happened, the guys back on earth. And it was really, can you imagine if you were those guys, like what that must've been like? Yeah. That, yeah, that, that you know, we were there at what, what you're talking about where this was recorded was in Houston, Texas. Yeah, but, at Mission Control in Houston, we were in Florida. Yeah, but didn't they have a mock-up of the room? In they Houston? did. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what I'm okay. saying. Like we weren't in the original room, but they had a mock-up of yeah. the room where the guys were. Yeah. Armstrong later confirmed that landing on the moon was the the biggest <laughs> concern of him landing on the moon. Were the unknowns were rampant, and there were just a thousand things to worry about. Like oh, I don't know, leaving Earth. Yeah, <laughs> landing yeah. on a on the moon. Yeah. So at 10.56 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Armstrong stepped off the, uh, the lunar module and became the first human being to put foot in another world. With more than a half a billion people watching on television, he climbs down the ladder and proclaims, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And we're going to play you the audio of that also. And those are, of course, iconic words now, um, but I'm curious, I don't know if you know or if maybe one of our listeners knows, if that was like a spur of the moment uh, thing yeah, that he said, or if it was something, I would think that that would be something that you would be thinking no. about. Everything I've read said that was just something. I mean, he kind of thought about it, but that's was that's a incredible. It, it happened right then as he stepped off. That yeah. is incredible. Buzz Aldrin joined him shortly after and offered um, some simple but a simple but powerful description of the lunar surface as a magnificent desolation. They explored the surface of the moon for about two and a half hours. They collected samples, and they took a lot of photographs. They left behind an American flag and a patch honoring the fallen Apollo 1 crew and a plaque on one of the eagle's legs. It read, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon, July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. And this is another reason why I'm so in awe of these guys, because you know, if it had been us going up there, I would have stepped off the lunar module and be like, whoa. Yeah. Well. <laughs> like, that's all. And yet they had the presence of mind to use words like magnificent desolation and say things like it's one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. These guys are absolute heroes. Well, Armstrong, I agree. Armstrong and Aldrin, they climbed aboard the uh, lunar module they blasted off to rejoin Michael Collins, who had been circling the moon in the uh, in Columbia, which the command module. Collins said later, uh, for the first time, he really felt like we were going to carry this thing off. And then they began the return back to Earth. On July 24th, 1969, Apollo 11 was 47,000 miles from Earth and rapidly accelerating towards the crew uh, towards Earth with the crew of Apollo 11. They awoke for their last day in space, and they prepared for the splashdown of the Pacific Ocean 950 miles southwest of Hawaii. The previous day, mission managers were forced to move the splashdown point by about 250 miles 
to the northeast due to inclement weather in the Pacific Ocean at the, the original recovery site. The U.S. aircraft carrier USS Hornet was designated the prime recovery ship for the Apollo 11 crew for the Apollo 11 mission. They, they raced to the new splashdown site. Overcast skies. Now, this is, again, this it's is pretty incredible right here. Mind-blowing. Overcast skies made stellar navigation impossible. So the Hornet, that, you know, that is like how the old-time sailors used the sextants and they would navigate by the stars. Well, they couldn't see the stars, so the Hornet had to use the age-old technique of dead reckoning to arrive on time and at the proper position to recover the crew and the aircraft. You know, they didn't have GPS and all the fancy stuff that they it's had. incredible. Yeah, they just had to aim the ship, just calculate the speed, <laughs> calculate the, the currents and the wind. And some smart and, guys. And, yeah, a lot of smart people made a lot of things happen back then. Um, at about an altitude of 24,000 feet, the, Spain, the spacecraft's apex cover was jettisoned, followed less than two seconds later by two drogue parachutes to slow and stabilize the capsule. At 10,000 feet, the three main 83-foot diameter orange and white parachutes deployed and the Hornet established radio contact with Apollo 11 as it descended down through the pre-dawn sky at approximately, I mean, at precisely 195 hours, 18 minutes after lifting off from Florida, Apollo 11 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, successfully completing the first human landing on the moon. Hornet was still 13 miles away, but was quickly closing distance, but the recovery helicopters were there on station to recover the astronauts in the ocean. On splashdown, the astronauts climbed out of the capsule and climbed aboard their life raft. First was Armstrong, then Collins, then Buzz Aldrin. Navy diver Hadelberg had some difficulty closing the capsule's hatch, and first Armstrong, then Collins, helped to finally secure the hatch and get it closed. Heidelberg, now, they were afraid of what was happening or what they might be Coming back to the moon causing obviously, diseases. Yeah, no one had ever been there before. Yes. Uh, Hadelberg sprayed the capsule with betadine and then wiped the astronaut, astronauts down with sodium hypochlorite solution for decontamination purposes. And I don't know why they figured that was what they needed, but that's what they did. The recovery helicopter plucked the three astronauts from the life raft and winched them up in the helicopter where uh, NASA flight surgeon William, Dr. William R. Carpenter was aboard the helicopter and gave them a very brief medical evaluation. The helicopter flew them to the deck of the Hornet, uh, landing on the deck 63 minutes after splashdown. From there, the sailors placed the helicopter on an elevator, took it below decks. The astronauts were placed into quarantine in what they called an MQF, or a mobile quarantine facility. But really, all it was was an Airstream camper. <laughs> A second MQF was held in reserve in case problems arose with the first or in case any of the ship's crew inadvertently exposed to the astronauts or the spacecraft. They didn't know what they were going to find well, yeah, when they landed on the moon, so they didn't know. Yeah. So the three astronauts, uh, Collins first, followed by Armstrong, Aldrin, and Dr. Carpenter, walked the 10 steps from the helicopter to the MQF amid the cheers of the Hornets crew and the assembled media who had been... On the, you know, right. obviously this is yeah, very it's kind historic. of a big deal. NASA engineer John K. Hirosaki was awaiting inside the MQF and filmed the astronauts entering. The five of them remained inside the MQF until their arrival at the Lunar Recovery Laboratory, or the LRL, at the Manned Spacecraft Center 
now the Johnson Space Center in Houston two days later. So let me give you it's a couple. You, you mentioned this. Let me give you a, a couple little tidbits of information right here. This blew my mind when you told me this. Yeah. The computer that was on Apollo 11, the Apollo 11 had a processor, which was an electronic circuit that performs operations on external data sources, which ran at 0.043 megahertz. Now, that doesn't mean anything to me sitting here, but let me let me put this in perspective. That means that the iPhone that you're carrying in your pocket has over 100,000 times the processing power of the computer that landed men on the moon. That is insane. We sent them to a, like, into space. And didn't even give them an iPhone. <laughs> into space with this, t- like, this nothing. Like, yeah. we just shot them off basically out of a glorified cannon now, into space. There is another story, and I can't verify the truth to this, but there was a rumor that the Soviet ambassador in England went to the British embassy in London and told the British that they thought it was very rude and crass that the Apollo 11 astronauts planted the United States flag on the moon and not the flag of the United, of the United Nations. It's reported that the British, British officials told them that if they didn't like it, then they should go take it down. I love that story, and I really, really hope that it's true. Yeah. Because I think that is an entirely appropriate so, again, response. Astronauts... Those guys are cool. Yeah, they they were my heroes growing up. As well they should be. And I hear they're all super nice guys, too. Yeah, and Neil Armstrong was from Wapakoneta, Ohio, about a little over an hour north of us right here. And he ended up living in, uh, moving to Lebanon, Ohio, where he taught at uh, the University of Cincinnati. How would you like to have him I think that as your would be professor, cool. yeah. I, so I heard a story, and I don't, I don't know if it's true, but there's a local kind of legend um, that he got real salty that his barber, I guess, stole some of his hair and tried to sell it on eBay. And he was like, "Dude, I would have just given you my hair. It's no big deal. You don't have to steal it." Like yeah. he was more mad about the fact that the barber like kept the hair after he swept it up off the floor yeah. than he was about you know the actual keeping of the hair and trying to sell it. Yeah. So that is my portion of 1969. So now Kim is going to move into some other things. Yeah, and so I just do kind of want to caution you, um, especially if you are a youngster or if you're a little bit sensitive, uh, you know, you might want to tune out for this next part because we are going to get into a a little bit of graphicness. But um, there may never be a month as contradictory as August of 1969. Yeah, well, it's going to be September 2020 when they, they're trying to decide whether to send kids back to school. Uh, well, August of 69 began with one of the most infamous criminal crews in the entire 20th century. 32-year-old aspiring musician Charles Manson had tried in vain to get a record deal with Bird's producer Terry Melcher. Did, did they ever release any of his songs or they any, did. any recordings? They did, actually. They are out there on the internet. If you really want to find them, you can do a deep search and, and you can find some of Charles Manson's recordings. They're not bad. They're not great, but they're not bad. Um, so uh, Terry Melcher turned him down, and on August 8th and 9th, Charlie Manson en- enacted his revenge. Now, at the time of their meeting, Melcher had been renting a house at 150 Cielo Drive in Beverly Hills, and on the evening of August 8th, Manson family members, Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Susan Atkins, went to the house to, in Manson's words, 
totally destroy everyone there as gruesome as you can. Now, when we say family, for those of you who don't know about the Manson family and Charles Manson and his followers, they were not an actual family. Charles Manson was um, a sort of a career criminal who preyed on especially young women uh, during this time period, there were a lot of people headed out to California, to Berkeley, to find peace and love and follow the hippie movement, and those are the kind of people that he preyed upon, gathered them together as a group and called them his family. And a lot of people seem to think that Charles Manson was after Terry Melcher and didn't realize that he no longer lived in the home, but that's actually not true. Charlie knew, he just didn't care. Um, the house was in fact chosen because Tex Watson had also been there and was familiar with the layout. So, in fact, film director Roman Polanski, who um, was the director of Rosemary's Baby, among others, uh, was living there with his wife, actress Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, but on August 8th, Polanski was out of town, so Sharon had friends and, and actually former boyfriend, uh, hairstylist Jay Sebring, uh, screenwriter Wojciech Frykowski, and his girlfriend Abigail Folger, a hair, heir to the uh, Folger coffee fortune. Um, they were The three of them were over at her house. So at just past midnight, the killers arrived at the house and Tex climbed up and cut the phone line. The girls backed the car up to a hill that led to the house and climbed over through some bushes. And at that point, they encountered Stephen Parent, a friend of the groundskeeper. Now, this is where you might want to tune out if you're still with me and you're kind of sensitive. Um, uh, Stephen Parent uh, begged for his life, but Tex shot him four times in the chest and the abdomen and he killed him. Watson next cut the screen out of a window, then told Kasabian to keep watch down by the gate, so she walked over to Stephen Parent's car and just kind of waited. Um, so Tex Watson removed the screen, entered through the window, and let Atkins and Krenwinkel in through the front door. Now the, the three guests and Sharon Tate were sleeping inside at this point because it's late. He whispered to Atkins, and he woke Frykowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch, Tex Watson kicked him in the head, and Frykowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there, and Watson replied with a very famous quote, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. So on Tex's direction, Susan Atkins found the house's three other occupants with Krenwinkel's help and forced them into the living room. Watson started to tie Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring together by their necks with rope, which he'd brought, and he threw it over one of the living room ceiling beams. Sebring protested the murder's rough treatment of the pregnant Tate, so Watson shot him. Abigail Folger was taken back to her bedroom for her purse, and she gave the murderers $70, which is all they got out of this. Um, he then, Tex Watson then stabbed Jay Sebring seven well, $70 times. was almost enough to buy a car back then. That's true. Not really. Um, Tex Watson then stabbed Jay Sebring seven times. Um, we'll check Frykowski's hands had been bound with a towel, but he freed himself and started struggling with Susan Atkins, who stabbed at his legs with a knife, and he fought his way out the front door and onto the porch, but Tex Watson caught up with him, pistol-whipped pistol him in the head multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, and shot him twice. Linda Kasabian, remember, she's back at the car. She'd heard horrifying sounds, in her words, and moved toward the house from her position in the driveway. She told Susan Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. Now, inside the house, Abigail Folger had escaped from Patty, Patty Krenwinkel and ran out a bedroom door to the pool area. Krenwinkel pursued her and caught her on the front lawn where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Watson then helped finish her off, 
Abigail Folger was stabbed a total of 28 times. Wolchek Frykowski, still alive, struggled across the lawn, but Tex murdered him with a final flurry of stabbing. Frykowski suffered 51 stab wounds. He'd also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which bent the barrel so badly that it was unusable, and it also broke off one side of the gun grip, which was later recovered by the police. Now, in the house, Sharon Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth, and she offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child, but Atkins or Watson or both murdered her, stabbing her 16 times. Now, Charles Manson had told the women to, quote, leave a sign, something witchy, so Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Sharon Tate's blood. Now, at that point, everyone returned to Spawn Ranch, which was kind of like a movie ranch that, that you could rent out to, to film, um, and that's where the group had been living. Now, apparently, Charles Manson wasn't happy with the chaos of the murder, so he decided a little training session was in order. So on August 9th, he took the original four killers, along with Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan, out to 3301 Waverly Drive, home of Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. Now, Lino owned a grocery store. Rosemary was a seamstress and kind of owned her own seamstress shop. And their house was chosen because it was next door to a place where Charles Manson and his followers had attended a party the year before, which to me is absolutely terrifying. The idea that they didn't know these people, they didn't have anything against them, they weren't rich and famous, they were just regular people, and the Manson family had gone to a party next door a year ago, and so they just randomly decided to go to this house. Um, Now, according to Atkins and Kasabian, Manson disappeared up the driveway and returned to say that he'd tied up the house's occupants. He then sent Watson up with Krenwinkel and Van Houten. Now, Tex Watson says in his autobiography that Manson went up alone and then returned to take him up to the house with him. And Manson pointed to a sleeping man through the window and the two entered through the unlocked back door. Tex Watkins added at trial that he went along with the women's account because it made him look that much less responsible. So the truth is only known to a handful of people and they're clearly not talking. Now, as Watson related it, Manson roused the sleeping Lino LaBianca from the couch at gunpoint and has Watson bind his hands with a leather strap. Rosemary was brought from her bedroom into the living room, and Watson followed Manson's instructions to cover the couple's heads with pillowcases, which he bound in place with lamp cords. At that point, Charles Manson left, sending... Krenwinkel and Van Houten into the house with instructions that the couple should be killed. And this is really interesting because Charles Manson to the very end said he was not, he didn't take place in any of these murders. He never killed any of these people. And that's probably true. He didn't kill any of them. Now, Tex Watson had complained to Manson earlier of the inadequacy. And I don't know. I mean, he may he, not physically do exactly. Anything, but that's he what I'm saying. It. Like okay. he may have ordered yeah, it, like, but he contra- didn't actually contract do murder. Them. You're yeah. still guilty. Now, Tex Watson. Um, so he had complained earlier to Charles Manson that the previous night's weapons weren't good enough. So he sent the women from the kitchen into the bedroom where Rosemary LaBianca had been returned from, remember she took, went from the bedroom into the living room, they took her back into the bedroom. Um, And then Tex Watson went into the living room and started stabbing Lino LaBianca with a chrome-plated bayonet. 
Um, the very first stab went into his throat. Now, um, at that point, Tex Watson heard a scuffle in the bedroom, and he went in there to discover that Rosemary had been keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp tied to her neck. Um, so he stabbed her several times with a bayonet and then returned to the living room and kept attacking Lino, whom he stabbed a total of 12 times, and then he carved the word war into his abdomen. At that point, Tex returned to the bedroom, found Krenwinkel stabbing Rosemary LaBianca with a knife from the kitchen. Now, Manson had instructed Tex Watson to ensure that each of the women played a part, so he told Leslie Van Houten to join in stabbing her, and she did, stabbing her about 16 times in the back and exposed buttocks. Now, Van Houten claimed at trial that Rosemary LaBianca was dead when she stabbed her, and evidence did in fact show that many of the 41 stab wounds had actually been inflicted post-mortem. Now, at that point, Watson cleaned off the bayonet. He took a shower in their house while Krenwinkle wrote rise and death to pigs on the walls and helter-skelter on the refrigerator door, all in the LaBianca's blood. She gave Lino LaBianca 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled carving fork, which she left jutting out of his stomach, and she also planted a steak knife in his throat for good measure. Meanwhile, Charles Manson had been driving the other three family members who had left Spawn Ranch with him into the Venice home of an actor, and he left them there and drove back to Spawn Ranch, leaving them and the LaBianca killers to hitchhike home. He wanted his followers to murder the actor in his apartment, but Kasabian thwarted this murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong apartment door and waking a stranger. The group abandoned the murder plan and left, but Atkins just defecated in the stairwell on the way out. That's just because I guess that's what you do. Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, Tex Watson, and Charles Manson were all sentenced to death, but those sentences were commuted to life in prison in 1972. Susan Atkins died of brain cancer in 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel has been denied parole 14 times and is now the longest incarcerated female inmate in California. Leslie Van Houten has been denied parole 22 times, and a, um, but she was approved of the last three, but those paroles were overturned by the governor, and I believe that she's up for parole again soon, so we'll see how that goes. Tex Watson is still in prison where he claims to have become a born-again Christian. And Charles Manson, although, like I said, didn't actually commit any of those murders, was still sentenced to a life in prison. He died in 2017 at the age of 83 after spending all but 13 years of his life incarcerated. Well, he had a little bit of a record before all this happened. He did. That's what I'm saying. Like, all but 13 of his years were spent in prison. He's from Cincinnati. I think that's where he was born, yes. Yeah. Um, so he was 83. He spent 70 of his 83 years in prison, off and on. Wow. That's insane. What are you going to do with your life, Charlie? Oh, he was, he apparently, I mean, I don't know how it worked because you are not allowed to make money off of your crimes. But if you were, Charles Manson would be a very rich man indeed. Um, because he's had numerous books written about him. He, he's probably written books. I don't know. Um, but he's, I would argue, he's one of the most famous murderers of all time, even though he didn't actually murder. He, he did murder people, but he didn't murder the people that he's famous for murdering. 
Now, a few weeks later, the biggest party this country has ever seen took place in Bethel, New York. The Woodstock Music Festival and Aquarian Experience was the concept of 420-somethings. John Roberts, Joel Rosenman, Artie Kornfeld, and Michael Lang. Now, Lang had organized the successful Miami Music Festival in 1968, and Cornfield was the youngest vice president at Capitol Records. Roberts and Rosenman were New York entrepreneurs involved in building a Manhattan recording studio. You know who the first band to sign on was? Nope. CCR. I like them. I know you do. You mentioned that earlier. Creedence Clearwater Revival was the first band to sign on to the festival. Now, originally, the three-day show was supposed to be held at Howard Mills Industrial Park in Wallkill, New York, but the neighbors got a little spooked, and not only did they back out, but they passed a law saying that you weren't allowed to have any more than 5,000 people at an event. Um, so basically, they like they said that this is not going to happen here. Was it because of quarantine? No, this is pre-COVID. Okay. Um, so finally, a month before the scheduled date, dairy farmer Max Yasger rented out 600 acres for a reported $75,000. Now that is equivalent to $526,000 today. I wish that I had $526,000 to blow on a music festival when I was 20-something, but I didn't. What? You look like you want to say something. Me me too. (laughs) The organizers scrambled to get together fencing, entrance gates, ticket booths, a performer's pavilion, concession stands, bathroom facilities, medical tents. But by the time people started arriving a few days before schedule, the fencing, the gates, and the ticket booths still weren't ready. And according to Michael Lang, quote, you do everything you can to get the gates and the fences finished, but you have priorities. People are coming, and you need to be able to feed them and take care of them and give them a show. So you have to prioritize. And so since there were no ticket booths, Woodstock became free. Originally, about 50,000 people were expected, but by August 13th, at least that many. Now remember, it's supposed to start August 15th, I think. By August 13th, at least 50,000 people had camped out, and 100,000 tickets were pre-sold. Now, eventually, about a half a million people showed up, often parking their vehicles on the highway and just walking the rest of the way. And after the upheaval of the year so far, with Vietnam and civil rights movements and all kinds of craziness, people were eager to come together and celebrate peace and unity. There was terrible weather, a lack of sanitation, food, and water. There was, however, an abundance... Some pretty good bands there. There were. There was an abundance of mud and an abundance of love. There was a lot of that make love, not war element, that hippies are known for, uh, wherever and whenever they pleased. Off-duty police officers were not welcome, so it's estimated that there were no more than a dozen cops to keep an eye on over 50,000 people. Now, I have heard, too, that there was a lot of, I've read this, there was a lot of crime, a lot of women were assaulted. There was, it wasn't all just peace and love. There That's was a lot true. of bad things happening here at the, uh, during this. Allegedly, eight women experienced miscarriages. One teenager died after being run over by a tractor, and there was only one attributed drug-related death. So I, I don't know, you know, how much was underreported, but... 
To help pick up the slack, organizers got help from pig farmer Wavy Gravy. Um, he, <laughs> his crowd control involved dousing people with seltzer water or throwing pies at them when they got out of control. The first performer of Woodstock, do you know who it was? CCR signed up first, but do you know who the actual first performer was? Uh, I don't remember. Richie Havens took the stage at 5 p.m. on August 15th. The final performer on that first night was Joan Baez, who wrapped up at 2 a.m. in a torrential downpour. Between them, hang on a second. We had, oh, if I can pull up my list here. There we go. Okay. Um, between them, there was also a, a yoga guru, um, Bert Summer, Sweetwater, Melanie, Tim Harden, Ravi Shankar, Arlo Guthrie. Um, and then that was just the first day. Day two began at about 12.15 in the afternoon and wrapped up the next morning after going all night. Um, so day two started at 12.15 p.m. involved Quill, Country Joe McDonald, John Sebastian, Keith Hartley Band, Carlos Santana, The Incredible String Band, Canned Heat, Mountain, The Grateful Dead, CCR, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane. And day two... Airplane, not Starship. Yes. Okay. Day two actually ended on day three at around 9.45 a.m. So day two went all through the night. Day three began later that afternoon at 2 p.m. And the final set included Joe Cocker, Country Joe and the Fish, 10 Years After, The Band, Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, by this time it joined the band, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Shanana, and the final performer, who was it? I don't know. Jimi Hendrix. Okay. What, the most famous performance of his career. Um, his legendary performance was the last set of the festival, was witnessed by that time the crowd had dwindled to about 25,000 people. Now, interestingly, not everyone who had been approached to perform agreed. Some of the people that were asked to perform at Woodstock but said no included Simon and Garfunkel, Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, which really surprises me, The Birds, which uh, remember Terry Melcher was their producer and had just been, you know, affiliated with the Manson family a couple weeks before, The Moody Blues, The Doors, Roy Rogers, John Lennon, Chicago Transit Authority, and the Rolling Stones, who, remember, had a hit record at this point in time. Landowner Max Yeager shared the following words at the culmination of Woodstock, which are just as inspiring, I think, now in 2020. He said, You've proven something to the world. The important thing that you've proven to the world is that a half a million kids, and I call you kids because I have children who are older than you are, a half a million young people can get together and have three days of fun and music and have nothing but fun and music, and God bless you for it. Woodstock in five, six, seven minutes right there. That would have been really interesting to, to be there. It would have been. And yeah. so there is a museum now um, in the original location. And then, of course, Pepsi 
put on like a second Woodstock uh, back in the 2000s something or late 90s or something at like the fifth, I don't know, whatever anniversary it was, 40th maybe. Um, And it was not free. Uh, It actually cost a lot of money to go to that. And it was corporately sponsored. So it was pretty much like the anti-Woodstock if you you really think about it. Well, we're way over an hour. So we may as well go ahead and throw out a few more other little tidbits of 1969. There were three other Apollo missions in 1969, Apollo 9, Apollo 10, which were all precursors, and they tested out different things to get ready for Apollo 11, Mm -hmm. and then Apollo 12, which was a second manned moon mission, which launched on November 14th, and um, it took astronauts Charles Conrad Jr., Alan Bean, and Richard Gordon Jr. to the moon. They successfully landed on the moon on November 19th, about 950 miles away from where Apollo 11 had originally landed. On January 30th, the Beatles, Billy Preston, we talked about this earlier, gave their final live performance on the roof of the Apple Building in London with a live performance. It was an impromptu performance that lasted about 42 minutes. The Beatles released Abbey Road on September 26th. Abbey Road was not the group's final album to be released to the public, but it was their final album to be recorded together. I believe the White Album was their last. Yeah. Uh, let's see, some other things that happened in 1969. Project Blue Book, the United States Air Ooh. Force investigation. Hey, Jay. <laughs> investigation into uh, unidentified flying objects officially comes to an end on December 17th, 1969. The Montreal's Expos baseball team was created. The RMS Queen Elizabeth II entered service. And Robin, Robin Knox Johnston became the first person to sell around the world solo without stopping. And PBS, the public broadcasting service, was established. Also in 1969, Senator Edward Kennedy drove a, a car into a pond at Chappaquiddick on July 25, leaving... 25. Uh, 25. Oh, man, it's been a long day. <laughs> July 25th, leaving Mary Jo Kopechny in the car and killing her. Uh, Hurricane Camille hit Mississippi, killing 248 people. Britain deployed troops in Northern Ireland following increasing violence. Walmart was incorporated in 1969. Um, The trial began of the Chicago 7, accused of inciting a riot at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Charles de Gaulle resigned as French president. The death penalty was abolished in the UK. And then also in 1969... Um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on Stanley versus Georgia, declaring that, quote, the state may not prohibit mere possession of obscene materials for personal use. Hmm. Uh, a free concert, not Woodstock, uh, but another free concert was organized by the Rolling Stones, was held at Altamont Speedway in Livermore, California. Uh, and that was a f- kind of a famous concert because the Hells Angels were the bouncers. Uh, and a number of people died as well, a result. A lot of people got bounced. Uh, the groundbreaking TV program, Monty Python's Flying Circus, was shown for the first time in 1969. And the catchphrase, and now for something completely different, becomes their trademark. Sesame Street made its debut on PBS. Because we now had PBS. Right. Uh, the John Lennon album, Two Virgins, featuring John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the nude, uh, was confiscated at Newark Airport. And um, Brian Jones, the former Rolling Stones guitarist, drowned after a drug and drinking binge in 1969. Well, 
that just about <laughs> sums up 1969. Yeah. What, what a year. Yes. So as we, as we bring our one-year anniversary show to a close, um, and as we move forward into the second half of another tumultuous year in American history uh, in 2020 as we face continued pandemic and an upcoming election and the ever-constant pursuit of a more perfect union, I'd encourage all of our listeners to follow that same unified spirit that Max Yeager spoke about um, and just really come together and you know, enjoy each other's company as much as you can in the spirit of togetherness. See, you, you talked about Woodstock. Now you're going all hippie on me. I'm just saying we could use a little bit of love right now in the world. So this wraps up one full year of an hour of your life. Kim and I have enjoyed this immensely. It gives us something to look forward to. It really we don't does. make we don't make a penny off this. Nope. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fun little hobby for us to do, and a, we're looking forward to another year. Absolutely, a little bit of a humble brag. As I was kind of looking back on what we've come through in this past year, we've met a I'll lot be of humble. a lot of really amazing people. Shout out to our friends at TSP, the Wells family, um, Steve Heeman, uh, and just everybody that's come and joined us on the show. Steffi uh, Hudson. Um, just a lot of really phenomenal people. Um, thank you to uh, Gem City Podcast um, for inspiring us and uh, and helping us get into the Best of Dayton Finals for our first year ever. Um, thank you to uh, TSP for inspiring us and, and helping us to get a Webby scholarship, which was a big deal. Um, and thank you to everyone all over the world who has got us to over 5,000 downloads in our it's, first year. It's a year. lot more than that. They just sent that sticker that's a way big, late. That's a big, yeah. big deal. So we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We love spending our, our one hour a week with you. Um, we hope that you know that you feel welcome into our lives as well. So here we are, and as we move into the next year, we plan on keeping the same format. Yep. We have a lot of topics that we think are interesting, and we're going to do our best to provide a, an informative and entertaining show, maybe make you laugh, maybe make you think. And yeah. what's, our, what's our motto, Kim? Do your research and educate yourself. Okay. Always. So, yeah. Oh, so, and of course I forgot Leonard. Thank you, Leonard. Um, we have a very special friend who listens to us. Uh, okay. So thank you. So here we are getting ready to wrap it up for the night well over an hour. But you know what? We're having fun with this tonight. So it's, yeah, it's our prerogative. Deal. It's our prerogative to go Let over Let us have hour. this one. Yeah. So, Kim, how do they get hold of us? You can find us on Twitter um, at a lost hour, which is also our email address, alosthour at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at an hour of your life. So, from our studios in Sugar Creek, Ohio. Thanks for... That was Rupert. <laughs> Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this week's episode include, of course, Wikipedia, NASA.gov, and History.com. Thanks for a phenomenal year, everybody. And all recordings are public domain.